Hello and welcome to Frontier of Infinity. Or rather, I should say, to the first episode of Space Battle. The show within a show where we take two historical spacecraft and pit them against one another in a fight to the death. Or something like that. I don't honestly know if this is going to be a recurring segment in the show or not. But I thought that on the eve of the first human space launch, it would be valuable to take a closer look at both the Mercury and Vostok spacecrafts to get a solid idea of how they worked, how they're similar, and how they differed. Since NASA and the Soviets were working entirely isolated from one another, only able to glean information on each other's progress via news reports and the odd technical paper, they developed spacecraft that were quite different and conceived their missions in different ways. Gene Krantz, who would later serve as flight director for NASA, and who will become a major character in the story later on, wrote in his book, quote, Our intelligence on the Russian space program was pretty hot stuff. Notebooks with newspaper and trade journal clips pasted in them. The military apparently didn't feel that the civilians in NASA had a need to know whatever it was they knew, end quote. I should make it clear right off the top that today we'll be comparing the Vostok K, specifically the 3KA, to the Mercury Redstone and not the Mercury Atlas. Maybe we'll get another one of these once the Atlas comes into play, but for now, I want to focus on the two craft that launched the first Russian and the first American into space. We'll start with the Vostok. And it only makes sense to begin with the launch vehicle that would propel the crew capsule into space. Of course, the Vostok made use of the tried-and-true R-7 Semyorka, the Soviet workhorse. But the R-7 that launched Vostok 1 was different from the version that launched the Sputniks. Since Vostok was a far larger and far heavier vehicle than any of the Sputniks, weighing in at 2,270 kilograms, or approximately 5,000 pounds, Kurlyov and OKB-1 added a third stage to the ascent vehicle, dubbed the Block E. This stage was equipped with an additional rocket engine, which provided the last burst needed to put the crew capsule into orbit, and increased the Semyorka's lifting capacity from 500 kilograms to 4,730 kilograms, or approximately 1,102 to 10,428 pounds. The Semyorka's first stage was powered by RD-107 rocket engines, whose maximum thrust output clocked in at 970.8 kilonewtons, and was more than capable of putting the Vostok capsule into orbit. The crewed section of the spacecraft was descended from a surveillance satellite concept designated OD-2, and took the form of a large metal sphere. 
It was 2.43 meters in diameter, or about 8 feet, and it featured a large hatch at one side so that film could be removed and analyzed. But on the manned variant, this served as the entry and exit hatch. A couch resided directly below it, set facing a sizable porthole that was equipped with an optical orientation device called a visor, which used a system of mirrors to keep the capsule oriented properly using the sun as a reference point. The outside of the capsule was coated in an ablative heat shield, which would absorb most of the heat on re-entry. The interior of the capsule was filled with an atmosphere that resembled Earth's own atmosphere, composed of a mixture of 80% nitrogen and 20% oxygen. On the Vostok, the cosmonaut was more of a passenger than a pilot, as the controls in the capsule were locked off and would not be operable except with the input of a numerical code, which was kept from the pilot but it could be radioed up to the capsule in the case of an emergency. The idea behind this was to protect against the threat of so-called space madness, or the perceived threat of the pilot losing his mind once in space and trying to do something rash. Though, if your radio was down, or there was respectable interference from re-entry or solar radiation when you got into a tight spot, I guess you were just out of luck. The crew capsule was positioned over a roughly biconical segment known as the instrument module. The two parts were connected via a system of umbilicals. The instrument section contained various necessary components for the spacecraft's operation, such as the batteries that would supply power and the thermal regulation system for cooling the vehicle. This module also contained the retro rockets that would slow the vessel to commence re-entry, as well as vernier engines for attitude control. When the retro rockets fired and deorbited the spacecraft, the instrument module would be jettisoned to allow the crew capsule to fall on its own. In the event that these rockets failed to deorbit the spacecraft, it was equipped with sufficient rations and life support capability to sustain the cosmonaut for up to 10 days. The Vostok would orbit at an altitude low enough that atmospheric friction would sap enough energy from the capsule that it would naturally fall into a re-entry trajectory within 10 days. Once re-entry was initiated, the capsule would fall through the atmosphere. But about seven kilometers off the ground, the pilot would eject from the capsule through the hatch that rested over their head. The whole couch would launch free of the capsule, similar to the system on a fighter jet, and then the pilot would parachute down to the ground. The capsule would then deploy its own chute and follow the pilot down to the surface, where they'd be collected separately. This egress system actually sparked concern among the Soviets that it might lessen the prestige of a manned mission, as the pilot wasn't inside the spacecraft the whole time. As a result, they did everything they could to obfuscate the fact that this ejection system was part of the mission design. 
Across the world, in the United States, NASA prepared their Mercury Redstone after the Atlas had been deemed too unpredictable to carry a crew. Now, comparing the Redstone to the Semiorca isn't really fair. They were designed to fulfill entirely different purposes. The Redstone was built as a short-range battlefield ballistic missile similar to the V-2. The Semiorca, on the other hand, was an ICBM, designed to launch nuclear ordnance across oceans and continents. It's like comparing a howitzer to a pop gun. But regardless, the Redstone was smaller and less powerful than the R-7 in every way. It stood only 83 feet tall, about 25 meters, and it burned ethyl alcohol as opposed to the Semiorca's kerosene fuel. Both rockets had the same oxidizer, though, the old reliable liquid oxygen. The Redstone's single Rocketdyne A7 engine was only capable of 414 kilonewtons, or about 93,000 pounds of thrust in a vacuum, which was not enough to carry the Mercury crew capsule into orbit. This marks the single biggest difference between the first Vostok and Mercury missions. Vostok was designed to orbit the Earth, while Mercury was a ballistic flight, up and down along a parabolic flight path. Now, this would naturally put the Soviets at an advantage, as they would be able to carry out a more complex and technically impressive mission than the American vehicle was capable of. But there was also a certain advantage to the simplicity of the American mission design. In short, there were fewer opportunities to screw it up, decreasing the likelihood that their astronaut would end up stranded in space or dead in a million other ways by the uncountable hazards that lurk in space. The Mercury crew capsule was smaller than the Vostok, stretching out to only 13 feet in length, just shy of 4 meters. At its base, it was just 6.2 feet across, or about 2 meters, meaning the interior was a good deal more cramped than on the Vostok. The Americans also chose a different atmospheric composition than the Soviets, opting to fill the capsule with pure oxygen. While this decision had little impact on Project Mercury, it would prove to have grave consequences later on. The Mercury capsule did not have an instrument section like Vostok. It was all one piece, and thus had nothing to jettison before falling back to Earth. In fact, the capsules that flew atop Redstones didn't even need retro rockets, since they were ballistic flights. Gravity would do all of the work of slowing the capsule and then pulling it back down earthward. The attitude control system made use of hydrogen peroxide jets as opposed to the Vostok's vernier engines. But the control system on board the Mercury capsule was a good deal more sophisticated than the one on Vostok. It featured two completely separate control modes, one manual and one electrical. The manual system was entirely mechanical, 
whereby the pilot would open and close valves without any electrical support via the hand controller on the instrument panel. This system allowed for more precise control over the capsule's maneuvering by the astronaut on board, as they could manually and continuously vary the thrust output of the maneuvering jets. The other system was electronic, and allowed the pilot to fire the thrusters at one of two preset modes, low power or high power. Another huge difference between the Vostok and Mercury plans was how the capsules were controlled. Whereas the Vostok pilot was almost entirely passive, the Mercury pilot would actually have control over the craft in flight. This was a critical distinction, as in some people's minds, it dramatically changed the character of the two missions. The Soviet plan of firing a cosmonaut starward just as a passive observer wasn't all that different from launching an unmanned mission or another capsule with an animal inside. The American plan actually allowed the astronaut on board to pilot the craft. The American system also differed greatly from the Soviet one upon re-entry. The capsule would race earthward. But unlike the Soviet design, the Mercury capsule made use not of an ablative heat shield, but rather a beryllium heat sink design, which would absorb and retain the heat of re-entry rather than slowly melt. A drogue chute would preface the deployment of a larger parachute that would arrest the capsule's fall. The astronaut would stay in the capsule all the way down until it landed in the ocean. The heat shield would then jettison from the bottom of the capsule, and a large airbag on the bottom of the craft would both cushion the impact and keep the capsule on the surface of the ocean. The pilot would then disconnect from the life support system and crawl out either through the main hatch in the side of the capsule or the more awkward hatch at the top of the craft, where they'd be rescued by a helicopter dispatched from a waiting naval vessel. They would pick up the astronaut by lowering a so-called horse collar, basically a cushioned ring they could hook their arms through and then be hoisted up by. A second copter would recover the capsule, and then both would be flown back to an aircraft carrier. Just a cursory examination of these two crafts shows pretty quickly that the Vostok K is the superior of the two. But as I mentioned earlier, it's not really fair to compare them in their entirety. Still, the Semiorca is a vastly superior launch vehicle for this sort of mission, able to place its crew capsule into orbit. The Vostok capsule itself was also a more robust design in many ways, being larger with more interior space. It was also capable of sustaining its pilot for a much longer duration, 10 days as opposed to the Mercury's day and a half. The one area where Mercury has a huge advantage over Vostok is in control. Allowing the pilot greater control of the spacecraft is important for several reasons. For one, it gives the pilot greater autonomy and really grants a purpose to having a person on board. Secondly, 
it lets the pilot make adjustments as needed to cover for mistakes or malfunctions in the automatic control systems. Third, it imbues greater meaning to a manned launch. One of Kurlyov's top engineers, Boris Rauschenbach, said in an interview with historian James Harford, quote, We believed that we could do everything automatically, even with a cosmonaut present. Gagarin had nothing to do. The U.S. put man in control first, end quote. The last thing I want to compare between the Soviet and American systems is arguably the most important component in the spaceflight system, the pilot. The United States and Soviet Union went about selecting their pilots differently, which was largely reflective of the differing design philosophies between the two superpowers. Mark Galli a former Russian test pilot who had been named to head cosmonaut training by Kurlyov himself, reported, quote, The U.S. selected as astronauts professional test pilots with high technical education and strong flight experience. Consequently, they were about 10 years older than our cosmonaut candidates, who were young fighter pilots. Our main demand was perfect health. Experience has shown that the U.S. approach was more logical, and now the Russians are going the same way. Intellectual skills are more important than perfect health. End quote. On top of this, the American space jockeys were also slightly taller and heavier on average than their Soviet counterparts. Come 1961, both the Vostok K and the Mercury Redstone were ready to launch. The next great prize in the space race was on the line. Which side would be able to claim it? We'll find out in next week's episode. As always, thanks for listening, folks. I'll see you among the stars. <laughs>